This is an ABC podcast. This is Culture Compass with Sayuli Salamasina von Reiki on ABC Radio Australia. I bought my electric frying pan from home inside my carry-on suitcase um, and we're going to take our canopy soup and cut up onion and make us a little meal so that you can understand what pea soup tastes like and smells like. Mm. So, source of iron, tick, rich in protein, tick, quality beef, uh, maybe, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take it, tick. It's Salah here. And I'm in the kitchen with Jacob and Michael from Nisha Daily. We're cooking up a nostalgic feast. It's an opener. It's a very ancient can opener. This canopy is from a local um, Australian um, supermarket. And it is not like what... It's not the same brand as we get in Samoa. And I notice as I open the can, there's not much fat in here. Uh, compared to the ones that come to Samoa, the top layer is fat. Maybe half a centimetre? Nah, just that's a bit too much here, but anyway. Okay, we're putting it the fat into the pan so that we can fry up the onions first. And over to Jacob, who's chopping the onions. See if he's crying. <laughs> Look, I grew up outside of Australia, so like there's a particular brand that I know doesn't get shipped to Australia, so the nostalgia is still there, but would be nice if I could see that very same tin I used to grow up with. This smell is what a Pacific Island home smells like. Especially when you're really hungry and you're just like, yes, mom's making tin, mate! Um, yeah, just, you know, the combination. The corned beef out of the tin, the onions, of course. Oh, man, I just, just I need a tissue in my mouth. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, growing up, oh, you know, my mum is, how Salah's people would put it, a parlangi. Uh, so we didn't really cook a lot. She's not a huge fan of Timmy, but when we did have it, it was hit the spot. So, like, once I left home, it became an even bigger thing in my life. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I'm, I'm super into this. Haven't eaten all day in preparation. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, no, this, this, this is going to be great. <laughs> Is the smell what brought you to the kitchen today? Yes, it wafted down the stairs and I followed it. Yeah, she walked in off the street, was like, corned beef, yes please. <laughs> Bisupo, spam, bully beef, whatever you call it, all across the Pacific, you know what I'm talking about. And even though we don't buy it in my house, if it happens to end up here, well, I'm not going to say no. I'm Sayuli Salamasina von Reiki, and this is Culture Compass, the show about survival, revival, and connection throughout the Pacific. Can you imagine what our ancestors must have thought pulling back the lid of the first ever can of bully beef to reach them? Seeing this thick layer of fat covering a strange salty pink meat. It's a world away from the fresh fish and taro they were eating. It all started with missionaries and colonial powers, bringing this hearty canned meal to our islands. When the humble tins arrived in Samoa, it was cans of pea soup at first, not meat, and we just added the O, 
So you get pisupo. And now that's what we call corned beef. And it's become more than a delicious meal. You see it at weddings, funerals. It's even inspired political parties and caused diplomatic spats. But now that it's embedded in our cultures, we're seeing the toll it's taking on our health. So how did bully beef become such a status symbol in the first place? And is there a future where we can have our pisupo and eat it too? Michael Taffrey has been making art that questions the world around him for three decades now. His Samoan, Rarotongan and Tahitian identities means that he grew up around bully beef. And it wasn't long before he started to ask why this food was such a delicacy. So I live in Tafanganui Atara down in Wellington. But each summer, we don't spend a month on the homestead. And this is a homestead where you've got everything. Uh, my grandfather was like a green finger. He just grew everything. And he had livestock on, on the farm. So when I was going to Samoa or going to the other islands, I was really questioning about like, why, why we got the stock you know, on the island. We don't, I mean, we shouldn't be really consuming because, and for me, I use historical old photographs that um, I just talk about, like, you know, how we've, how fit and lean we were. And our gym is actually the plantation. We don't need to get a barcode to go to the gym. We got a free gym at the plantation. And just, yeah, it's all, I, I feel it's all related to mental well-being and having a synergy with um, the vegetation and the moana. Yeah, and, and I always remember my uh, uncle telling me, yeah, this is a Rotonga, ex and witchman, saying, we're virtually vegetarians, Mike. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we hardly ever ate meat. We only ate meat probably once a month, if that, or at a special occasion. That was the only time. So it's all sort of come around in a, in a funny around in a funny way. Yeah, so as we start, Michael, in 1994, you created a sculpture of a bull made of canned pisupo. Can you please tell me about the idea behind it? I was living in Tahiti um, at that time, just before then. Yeah. And I arrived back in Aotearoa and my wife introduced me to the International Festival of the Arts. And we needed sponsors for our community. The colleagues and I flew up to Auckland to ask the corned beef company if it was okay if we could, um, if they could sponsor us, you know, sponsor the community. And they said, look, we don't have any money. I said, well, I don't really care. Just give me the product. <laughs> and um, they said, okay, that's fine. And I said, so, yeah. And then basically they gave us pallets and pallets of corned beef. And then we, uh, I said, oh, look, I'm going to build a uh, a bovi, uh, like a realistic one. And the reason why I did that was uh, purely out of just concern, and, and, and it's still relevant today. It's about what we consume. And how it's part of, I, I mean, people call it a ritual or part of our tradition. I challenge that one. And you see it at weddings, funerals, parties, or up in the bush. You know, when I was living in Titi, you know, or even in Cook Islands, you know, we go up there, you take a can of pisupu, you know, so your survival food. But at the same time, I came fully aware of just the impact that bull has or that the stock has on the islands, you know, and especially when I was in Samoa, we were clearing out some plant uh, a plantation up the top. I was uh, having a, I got into a deep discussion with my cousins, like, why are we clearing this, you know, this plantation for? I mean, there's all this beautiful vegetation, and this is all we got to do that for the palu and uh, the bovis. And I said, but why? I started to question what we were consuming because now I'm virtually vegetarian. 
And I've always questioned about the amount of, you know, that processed food that is being dumped in the South Pacific. Oh, my Lord, Michael. But, you know, how did people react to the sculpture at the time? Well, look, it was a collaboration with Jim Viviani. It was called The Bottle Ocean. Um, it was a, like a survey show of the diaspora artists or artisans that were living in Aotearoa and Te Waipunamu. Now, it was quite controversial because when I met the Bovi, I, um, we did a deal between Jim and I. We wouldn't tell anyone who made it. We snuck it into the exhibition. So it was a major, it was a major show. And, um, and for me, it was, it was part of the question, like, what the hell is this thing? What has it got to do with the Pacific Islands, this four-legged animal that's on the islands, which is not part of us, uh, what we're consuming, this processed food that's been dumped mm. you know, on the islands, like from turkey tails to mutton flaps to – and that, for me, was just uh, just a vehicle to get the conversation going. And I still get into arguments. Some people just disagree. It's like it's a bit of a joke, you know, why did you – you know, making fun of our own people. And I sorry, I wasn't making fun of our own people. I was questioning about the lapisi that's left behind those products. And I remember growing up, I mean, going over to Samoa in the 70s, you know, we'd be sitting there, you know, with a banana leaf with all our food on it, and you just biff it in the bush and it disappears. But now you sort of have the plastic plate and you just biff it in the bush, but it doesn't disappear. And this is and this is only in the 90s when I was in Tahiti. I was in shock to see the amount of plastic and I think these vehicles, you know, different art vehicles are really important to address those issues about products that are coming into the islands or flooding into the islands because it does affect our biosystem. We've got a, me- a mechanical low may with all the fish tins on it, you know, and I worked up in the rainforest up in Melanesia. And again, I saw uh, a leather bag parked up and it was, it was, it just was dead. You know what it consumed. That's why it passed. So it's those little things that, you know, that sort of get me motivated to question about what we consume. I had this discussion with my husband last night. You know, I said, we're talking about pisupo, and I don't buy it. He turned and said to me, well, as long as we don't eat it like every week, I mean, can't we just have it like once a month? (laughs) I say, no. (laughs) We're trying to send a message. But you can't preach it. You can't talk about it, you know, about the health issue unless you practice. And for me, I'm really self-conscious about that. And I know that the the students are going to question me, sir, do you eat meat? Do you eat that product? I said, no, I haven't. I can't remember the last time I actually consumed it. It's because I'm really concerned about my my tamariki, what they can they question me because every time I take off on a project, those girls sneak down to KFC and I can smell it in the car when I come back or they're trying to hide the packets. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's my, you know, I, I, it's not just a fight with the, you know, the rest of the community trying to convince them. It's my own, it's my own whānau that I've actually got to deal with, you know, trying to convince. I mean, I get laughed at because, I, yeah, I'm always on the bike, I push bike. It's really unusual, but no, oh, we no, need good to be on safe. you. <laughs> good on you. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and like yourself, I was brought up on the farm as well, up in Waipu, far north of uh, Northland, North Island. Yeah. yeah, so I understand where you're coming from. It has become a part of our culture, and in lots of ways, it's a symbol of so many negative things. Mm-hmm. Now, is it time to change our relationship with Bisupo? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I've had really good, interesting discussions, you know, especially, well, 
here at the school. I always show those beautiful Chesterfield uh, uh, photographs of Samoa. You know how you know how lean they looked, and when they, yeah, for me that's a perfect example when you don't eat processed food. And I've seen my cousins make that transition when they consume the processed food when they came straight directly from Samoa when they stayed with us in the seventies when they started migrating over. So our house was like a hotel. And you'd see the, the transition of my cousins like packed it on because <laughs> you're not going, like you said, don't have to walk to the plantation, just go down to the shop. Exactly. And where is the relationship with the food? Do you think it's even possible to get bisupo out of our cultures? I like that one where they say, oh, it's traditional. And I said, no, it's not. It never has been. I mean, that's just the, they've used that word quite too, too loosely, you know, and that's part of our tradition. I'm like, well, no, it's not. Where did it come from, and how did it came to be, and how is it part, uh, how is it part of our tradition? We've got to have that space to talk about that. And as I said before, look at the product while we are consuming, and use examples or use vehicles to talk about that. Um, and like I said, um, I think when we started introducing the bullvier, uh, when I started making mechanical ones, I've got a barbecue one that walks by itself. It cooks the sauces as it moves. But it gives me a chance to talk, <laughs> talk to talk to the kids about what's in the what's in the meat, what's in it. And before the exhibition opened, I would smash them up or break them up as a statement to just to really get it into people's head, and they wouldn't forget it. And I said, "Like, why were you beating up all the all your sculptures? Because they're all beautiful." And I said, "It gave me a chance to panel beat them and put them back together again." But then it gave me a chance to engage with the public, everyone, just like you are asking me that question. I'm trying to figure out ways to how do you engage not just with the young ones, but the whole demographic. But it's a it's their choice at the end of the day. Like I said, we're up against a lot. Sorry, I can't give you an answer, but I, I'm trying. <laughs> so, Michael is using art to ask the important questions, like what are we going to do about this corned beef that is so bad for us. But none of us have the answers just yet. But Dr. Hina Akbar, a lecturer in public health at the University of Queensland, is trying. Dr. Akbar has been researching what our love of bully beef means for our health, and it's not so good. But she knows it's not a problem you can fix overnight, and it's something even she can't escape given how common it is in her Fijian culture. We were exposed to corned beef, corned mutton, um, canned tuna. Um, anything that was canned was a very common diet in almost every household, yeah. um, regardless of whether you're Itakoi or Fijian or Indigenous Fijian or an Indian Fijian or a Chinese Fijian of, of mixed heritage. Perhaps not all the time in my family, but something that we all liked. And it was also quite a delicacy or used in a lot of festivals, um, yeah. you know, um, big ceremonies and weddings and, you know, they'd put it, make it into polosami, yeah. um, which is cooked in coconut uh, milk and uh, taro leaf oh. <laughs> and um, baked. And that was a, a, a enridalo or kumala. And you just had that as a, a staple diet. My mouth waters as you say that. <laughs> totally understand. I'm, I'm, talk, I'm thinking, salivating as well as I talk about it. In your opinion, what is in it that makes it so unhealthy? It's processed, it's fatty, 
And it's actually has resulted in a long-term, you know, a lot of non-communicable disease. If you're consuming every day with processed, other processed um, food, it, it actually is unhealthy. And, you know, it's, what it's done, it's, it's taken away our traditional food practices and our traditional way of how we enjoyed food and gathered and prepared. We are actually moving away from what we usually do with gathering, hunting, fishing to a mall, you know, things you buy off the supermarket and off the shelves. You know, a few, um, few, few years ago, I was in New Zealand um, coming back uh, here to Australia. And my mother-in-law said, look, here, take a carton of pisupo. It's got 24 cans in it. And take it and give it to auntie in Brisbane. Okay, tell her that's from me. I know she loves this stuff. She's got like four cartons in her garage. I look at the case as I get to the airport. It says, made in Australia. So I bring this can from New Zealand, this carton back to New, to, back to Australia, to Brisbane, give it to my auntie. Which makes me wonder why don't they sell it in, in the shops Shop. here in Australia? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when we're getting it in Samoa and in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? It's a very good question. So many of those products that they have put like bully beef, corn beefs, they are uh, the leftover flaps and carcasses and meat been put together. They would not be used as consumptions for their own Australian as a commodity because it would probably won't be even be considered as a food. You know, it's, it's unhealthy. But they use it as an export into countries. And it's used for profit and the hold that corporate world and uh, commercial industries from developed countries have over developing countries is really not acceptable. But that's the reality. That's the reality. And, and that is what's bringing a lot of inequality, health inequity and the burden of health issues and concerns through products like this and which is what we actually teaching our medical students to start looking at it every corner of the shop you go in Fiji or in the islands is you know I was just came back from um, Solomon's in, in January soft drinks fast food outlets what good are they bringing to our country when we could have had a local plenty of local markets around different places and local produce do you know what I mean yeah, and yeah. coconut water the, the impact of corned beef on you know and other western influences on pacific diets how would you describe the diseases that have come from these these products that we have imported and used in such a way at least 10 pacific island nations are in are in the top 10 to 20 in the world with the highest prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So our Western Pacific region has got the most type 2 diabetes, our people. And when you're comparing that in terms of what's happening with Pacific Island peoples in countries like ourselves in Australia, we are at least four to ten times likely to die very early with type 2 diabetes or from premature deaths or even be diagnosed at a very early age and very complex comparable to First Nations or Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people's statistics compared to mainstream. You don't know unless you get yourself tested, Mm. a proper blood test. And then when you do find out, you actually, it's too late. You had something wrong with your kidney, your gallbladder, or you've had some complications with your eyes or your legs. Then you go into the hospital. So a lot of our community members, that's how they find out. Our Pacific Island people living here in Australia, they still practice the, the gifting of Bully yeah. beef of pisupo. Yes. Do you see any changes coming into this practice? 
Yeah, and you know, it's really um, interesting because I always say, let's go back to what our forefathers did. Yes. How was food uh, bartered and traded within, you know, um, you know, one home to another home? We were all families, like having a village. And so one of that practice has happened. These sort of things has become part of the practice, but out of convenience. But when you look at traditional foods, you know, it was sharing and exchanging dalo and taro with perhaps somebody's, you know, a pig that was cooked yeah. and uh, roasted um, across with one one home to another home, or somebody may have had some fruits that they had in their backyard was yeah. shared with maybe um, cassava. You know, that was a traditional sharing of fish. Somebody who went and um, fished actually shared that with a bit of piece of meat you had. But what's happened is now this sort of convenient uh, is a trade off, and I think. It, the reciprocity is an important element of our culture. You know, food is the basis of how we build relationship, we maintain relationship, and it's really an essence. And so we think by by, by sharing this food, it's got good meaning because we have a laugh and a gather and get together over food and we talk and we... Um, but we don't think of the consequences of the type of food we share. We need to think about what we're eating and what, detrimental yeah. effect it has on our health is, is, is a part that I think I bring that lens into saying that why don't we go back to food sovereignty? Why don't we look at food security? Why don't we go back to our traditional practices that our forefathers had had that, you know, what, what have we lost with colonization that, you know, what have we lost with industrialization, convenience, you know, yeah. fast food because we're all working, mums are working, dads are working. So we go with the canned food is much easier. Corn beef is so much easier. It yeah. is, yeah. You just you mentioned food sovereignty. Can you explain it in, in detail? So for us, when we talk about food security, we're talking about access to affordable but healthy food that brings in quality of life, not um, just food security where it fills you up, you know. But it's also about where our family and community is able to put food on the table to feed the family. But when we talk about food sovereignty, we need to revisit what that means about our traditional practices, about accessing our traditional cultural foods, bringing those cultural education and understanding about that and how do we place that into within a food security and a food household food context. Can you tell me about this thing called the Talano approach and how it's involved in your research into Pacific health? When we start to look at community research and looking and trying to understand about diet and health and what that means to us living here in Australia, we had to do it in a way that we're familiar with, our know, ways of knowing, being and doing. And so our ways of knowing, being and doing is about using our methods, our health models and our Indigenous ways of trying to understand information. So Talanoi is actually, uh, you know, which is used across in many of the Pacific Island nations as a way of conversing or having storytelling, but sharing in a very relational space. So it's got a cultural, spiritual, um, relational um, context. So for us, that was very appropriate to use in the in the sense because it's been used in other Indigenous First Nations um, research contexts. So by using that as versus a Western construct of research where you go and interview 
or where you go and do a very Western framed does not work around trying to deeply understand the meanings around when we're deconstructing diet in our communities. What does that mean? Because for us, food is so special. It's got spiritual context, religion, faith. It's got family. It's got connections. And it's about building it's got everything. Yes. And, and we don't, yeah. without it, things don't work. So when mm. we do research, we bring food into our space as well. So for us, um, using Talanoa in that space was really important because then we could actually unpack and deconstruct the meaning that is relevant to us in our community rather than looking at it from a Western lens. Oh, my, my heart sinks and then it rises again and it goes <laughs> down again. But, you know, one needs to change to make traditional ways of cooking more popular again? I think we need to go back to our roots again. We need to introduce our children to our cultures. You know, a lot of uh, my children are born here, but we go back home. And us, from what we have been taught through colonization and, and urbanization, is to unlearn something. Habits don't change overnight and we won't change it even a generation. So going back and I guess teaching that and us as elders in the community being part of that process of educating, work with governments to say invest into that because that's preventative but it's also re-bringing back culture we've lost, our culture that we've lost and reconnecting to those. But Continue reciprocity, but changing foods, you know, bringing, you know, dalo and taro and, um, you know, fish, you know, those things. Polisami can be done in a fresh way rather than, you know, with a can. can. Yeah. Yeah. So they're the little things you can still do in a traditional way, but Mm. changing that. And I think through education is the key to it. If you're listening to this program and you want to know what to do, how would we go about doing it? So my advice is to everyone as young as even 18 to 20 year old, if you've got a history of a family member with type 2 diabetes, even if you don't, but you feel that being a Pacific Islander, um, you know, you might be in that category my suggestion is that go and get a health check done. Go and see your doctor and ask them. You need to ask them that can I have a health check, proper health check and a blood test to see if I'm at risk. I'm I'm watching you say that and I've got a prescription on my on my desk at home. Yeah, last week the doctor told me to go get my bloods done. Yes. I'm going to do that before yeah. the end of this week. Thank yeah. you, yeah. doctor, for reminding me. Oh, nice and hot. So tell us a bit about your rice making process. You got to wash the rice. You don't want starchy rice. We, you know, we, we like rice the right way. It's got to be white rice. I don't care that my mom tried to make us eat brown rice all the time because it was healthier. Get out of here. We're already eating corned beef. So just like go for all in. Once your rice is no longer milky and all that, then you know you're out of starch town and you're, you're going to have a good time. Salah, I wonder if you could just for the group before we eat this, just explain a little bit about our interview just before with Dr. Hina Akbar. This is one of the main causes of diabetes type 2. And apparently, well, the cans that we have in Samoa, you don't have them in Australia, but they're made in Australia. But because they're made of other parts of the cow that you don't use here in Australia, so they can that up and send it home to us. Does that change your perspective on what we're about to do? Life expectancy for a Papua New Guinea man is about 60. I'm already past the halfway point, so, you know, let's... Good eating. Let's do it. (laughs) So Michael's saying he's had a good enough run. 
Erin, how do you feel about what you've just learned? I agree. I don't like waste um, and it's, it's a treat. It's a special treat. We know it's a problem, but we can't put the pea soup back in the can overnight. It's a food that's become part of all our important events. But it wasn't always this way, and it doesn't have to be this way forever. So maybe it's just a sometimes food. And if you find yourself cooking it up on a special occasion, you could try adding a bunch of vegetables in there too. Or cook it up with brown rice even if your son won't eat it at first. Or, hear me out, hear me out, you can drain the fat off first before you fry it up. I know, I know, that's the best bit. But if we put too much pea soup or fat in our bodies, you heard Dr. Akbar, there will be consequences. We've got to start somewhere, and maybe the first step is just questioning why bully beef has such a stronghold on the Pacific in the first place. This is Culture Compass on ABC Radio Australia. Culture Compass is hosted by me, Sayuli Salamasina von Raiki. Our ABC Radio Australia executive producer is Falangafulu Inga Stusner. From Dead Set Studios, our producer is Grace Pashley. And our executive producer is Rachel Fountain. This episode was produced on the lands of the Torrible, Jagara and Dorambol people. We pay our respects to elders past and present.